Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of God for us today. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, it is always fascinating to see what you do with your word. Here we are gathered together and you have a message that you have chosen for your people this day. And Father, only you, by your Spirit, can help us to see the beauty and the glory and the truth in the text. And my prayer is that you would use this text to shape our minds and shape our lives and to give us the joy of magnifying you. God, please, Be sovereign over us this day. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Some passages of Scripture fall into the category that we might call difficult. Some topics are tough. But there are different reasons why different topics are difficult. Some topics and passages are hard to understand, right? I mean, there are some things that maybe the theological concept or the wording is just plain difficult for us to understand. That happens from time to time. But there are other kinds of difficult passages. There are passages which are difficult not because of the wording, but simply because we don't naturally like those passages. They're hard passages because they're hard for people in our culture to stand. And this morning, by the sovereignty of God, we are looking squarely at such a passage. Now, I have to tell you, for those of you who were not part of Sunday school, I also am absolutely stunned watching God repeat for us his message. And so if you were with us in Sunday school, you'll see a great consistency here this morning. Before we consider today's passage, and and the way we're going to handle today is a little different than what's typical for us. We're going to spend a lot of our time looking at things that will help us to think about the passage. We'll briefly look at the passage, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll unpack it further. But before we consider today's passage, we need to remember a couple commands that we've seen over the past chapter of the book of Colossians. Colossians 3, verse 1 said to us, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. First, remember, Christians, 
For us to live the lives that God desires for us, our hearts have to be set not on this life, but on the things above. We need to have something bigger than this world to hold on to our hearts. I once heard uh, John Piper illustrate the concept that I'm trying to suggest there with an illustration of the solar system. So your, your high school science classes should come back to your mind right now, right? What is it that keeps planets on track? How is it that Earth and Neptune don't go off course and fly into space? Do you guys know? Gravity, right? It is the immense gravity of the sun at the center of the solar system that keeps those planets on course. Can you imagine how much force it would take for us to try to keep Earth in its orbit if the gravity of the sun wasn't there? Anybody got that kind of power? No. Well, similarly, with our lives, your life, my life, if we want the aspects of our lives to work out rightly, you need the gravity of the glory of Jesus Christ to sit squarely at the center of your heart. You and I are not strong enough on our own to keep our emotions and our desires and our words and our relationships and our attitudes in check. And for you to try to keep all those things in line by your own power would be like me trying to push the earth around to get it in the right spot. You don't have that kind of strength. Only the gravity of the sun can keep the planets in line. Only the gravity of the glory of God can keep your life in order. Only if our lives have the vast glory of God at the center can we get things right. Now look down at verse 16 of Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We are also, the Bible says, to let the word of Christ dwell in us. The, the Holy Scripture is to dwell in us richly. So if we're going to be able to handle what the word of God says to us in the passage today, we have to first already have in our minds a genuine belief that the Word of God is perfect and right and authoritative. If you don't get that, this may be too much for you. But if you grasp that the Scriptures are inspired by God and everything we need for life and godliness, then maybe, just maybe, you'll be able to deal with it. Some verses from last week that helped us with that. Psalm 19, verse 7 said to us, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 said to us, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Or 2 Peter 1.21 said to us, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as we look at Colossians 3.18-4.1, through 4, 1, I want to ask you, yes, to think hard with me. And I also want to ask you to suspend any judgments you might want to make about the passage if it bugs you until we've thought it through together. But listen, folks. 
if God's word has commands, those commands are true and they're accurate and they're binding on the children of God and they're good. So let's look at the commands and let's give them a fair analysis. Let's give them a fair thinking. Let's give them a fair reading. Let's give them a fair application so that the glory of God can sit at the center of our lives and order our lives rightly. Now, in reality, looking at Colossians 3.18 to 4.1 gives us two words that tend to bug our modern sensibilities. In verse 18, look at your Bible, look at verse 18. What's the word that's apt to bug folks? Submit. If you even said it with that tone, I heard you all. In verse 20 and 22, there's one other word. What is it? Obey. Our culture didn't like those words. Well, hey, this was written in Greek originally. Maybe the Greek language will let us out of using those words, right? Maybe, maybe we can find some other alternative meaning so that we don't have to do it. Let's check, okay? The word obey is the Greek hupotasso. It comes, it's a compound word. It combines the word for under, That's the hoop or hoopo at the beginning of the word. Think about like a hypodermic needle, right? It's a needle that goes under your skin. Some of you are cringing right now. Under. But the the follow-up word is the word for arrange or organize or select. And what the word hoopotasso means is to get under the authority of another person. It means to be subject to. It means to submit to an authority. That's what the word literally means. What about the word obey? It is the Greek word hupo or hup akuo. Again, don't worry about my pronunciations. I've not got it right either. So we've got the hupo again, the prefix for under, and the word akuo, which think about the word acoustic. What does the word acoustic indicate to you? Sound, right? It is to get under the words or the commands of another. You know what that means? It means obey. So an analysis of the Greek real quick tells us that the words submit and obey mean exactly what they say. There's no wiggle room here. And so if these words are in the text, if these words are inspired by God, if these words mean exactly what they appear to mean, you and I are called by God to obey them. But why? Why would God command something like this? It's the 21st century. Why would this still be something God wants us to do? And before we look at this passage, before we really dig into the verses, here's what we want to do. I want to make for you a logical and biblical argument about why these commands are very much appropriate, even if our culture doesn't accept them. I'm going to give you two premises and then a conclusion, okay? So if you're a note-taking kind of person, here's how it's going to look. You'll have premise one, premise two, and the conclusion, which actually has the three sermon points that are really going to be next week, okay? So I'll tell you the premises, and then you can write them down as we go get to them each uh, as we move through here. The first premise is going to be God created people to demonstrate his character and glory. Second relationships of authority and subjection 
when carried out in a God-honoring context, demonstrate God's character and glory and do not demean God or his children in any way. I'll give it to you again later. Don't worry. Conclusion. Therefore, we participate in relationships of authority and subjection in order to demonstrate God's glory. That's the logical argument we're going to make. So, note takers, premise number one, God created people to demonstrate his character and glory. God created people to demonstrate his character and glory. I'm going to read several verses of scripture here. You just probably want to take them down, okay? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this verse right here, the first part of the Bible, describes the creation of humanity. And it teaches us two main things. First, we see there that mankind is created in the image of God, which proves to us that we exist for the purpose of displaying to the world the character and glory of God. Why would I say that first part? An image exists to show you what someone or something is like. There's other things behind the the meaning of the word image, but that is part of it. A family photograph, for example, is an image. And the picture in your family photographs shows people who look at it a little bit of what your family is like. If we're made in the image of God, we are supposed to show the world around us, the universe around us, something of what God is like. If we're created in the image of God, we exist to allow God to display what he is like. Secondly, in that verse from Genesis 1.27... We can also learn that the fact that God created both men and women in his image tells us that men and women are created with equal worth and equal value. That's good news, isn't it? In no way are men worth more than women. In no way are women worth more than men. Both are representatives of the person and the glory of God. And the same is true for parents and children, for employers and employees, for governors and the governed. All people exist with equal worth and equal value because all people exist created in the image of God. With me so far? Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. This is God speaking about bringing back to himself people who were in exile. And he says... I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Did you hear in that verse why God made us? He said, whom I created for my glory. We said, being created in God's image means that you were created for the purpose of his glory. God's glory is God's perfection, his, his beauty, his majesty, his weightiness. And all people everywhere exist 
for the purpose of showing others how great God is. No matter who you are, no matter what your rank, you exist in that role to show off the glory of God. So, all humans have been created by God. All are created with equal value. All are created with equal worth. And all are created for the sake of God's glory. As an image is intended to picture someone's physical attributes for others to see, our lives are supposed to picture God's character and God's glory for others. And so I would say to you that the first premise I gave you is true. God created people to demonstrate his character and glory. You okay so far? Good. Let's go premise number two. This is a long one, so get ready to write if you're a writer. Relationships of authority and subjection. Comma. Relationships of authority and subjection. When carried out in a God-honoring context. Comma. That's in a positive phrase to describe subjection and authority relationships. Anyway, actually, it describes relationships. Relationships of authority and subjection, comma, when carried out in a God-honoring context, comma, demonstrate God's character and glory. We're not done yet. I'm trying to keep you guys from running a period right there. Demonstrate God's character and glory and do not demean God or his children in any way. I'll repeat the whole thing for you. I feel like I've gone teachery on you. Some of you like it. Some of you are going, oh my word. Relationships of authority and subjection. When carried out in a God-honoring context, demonstrate God's character and glory and do not demean God or his children in any way. That is a ginormous truth, by the way. Can I prove it? We were all good with premise number one. Aren't don't you just love knowing you get, you get created to show off the glory of God? Doesn't that feel good? Makes you feel like you're important, doesn't it? That was easy. But how can I say this? How is it possible that relationships of authority and subjection demonstrate the character and the glory of God? Everyone in Sunday school already knows, and I didn't tell them, which totally feels unfair to me, by the way, because I thought I was going to look smart. But let's show you places in the Bible where God's revealed it to be true. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Listen to the verse. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Are you guys okay with believing that in the church, Jesus Christ is the head and everyone who is part of the church is under the authority of Jesus? We don't balk at that at all, do we? You know why? We like Jesus. We, we know this is good. We, we, we know him. We trust him. We know that he bought the church with his own blood. We know that we can only be forgiven because Jesus died and rose again to make us part of his family. So we're not bothered by Jesus being in charge of the church or placing us under his authority. In general, we know it's good that Jesus is the one who's the boss, right? 
But then, 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to 28, say this. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. Does it just mean that verse sounds swirly? Here's the deal. Not only is Jesus Christ the head of the church, which we're good with, Jesus Christ will also submit his authority to that of the Father at the end of all things. Thus, Jesus will both be, get this, Jesus will be an authority and he will be subject to authority. This is amazing when we remember the fact that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is equal to the Father in every way. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth and under the earth, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Or Colossians 2, verse 9 simply says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ is not less than God the Father, right? We know this. But he allows him to be himself to be in a relationship in which he is subject to the Father's authority. So get this, we can see in the Holy Trinity a relationship of authority and subjection right there among the very persons of the Godhead. But again, it's not so hard to believe that Jesus would, would submit to the Father, right? Why is that easy? Well, the Father's perfect, right? It's not hard to submit to a perfect person. Luke chapter 2, verse 51, talking about Jesus, and he went down with them Mary and Joseph, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So, if it's amazing to you that Jesus Christ would make himself subject to God the Father, how amazing is it to see Jesus Christ allowing himself to be made subject to Joseph and Mary? Does this start to feel a little different? Jesus subjected himself to human parents. He let them be the authority and he was the obedient one, even though, get this, he's God and they're mere humans. Even though he is wiser than them and more powerful than them, Jesus demonstrated perfect humility. So clearly, Jesus participated in a relationship of authority and subjection while he lived on earth. And he participates in a relationship like that with God the Father. Now, think with me. If Jesus allows himself to be made subject to the authority of others, what must we conclude about obeying the authority of others? 
if you are willing to be under another person's appropriate authority, it looks like Jesus. Submitting rightly to another person's authority shows off the glory of God. So why are so many people annoyed by the concept of being placed under authority? Doesn't it just make you cringe a little bit if I tell you to get under somebody's authority? A little bit. A little bit. Well, some people would argue that being subject to another person devalues you as a person. Just demeaning. But here's the thing. We see Jesus do this in the Trinity. And we don't just see it with Jesus and God the Father. We see Jesus do it with earthly parents. And guys, look, Mary was great. Joseph was great. They were both sinners. And Jesus submitted to them. So what do you think? Was Jesus devalued by submitting to authority? Did Jesus become somehow worth less because of submission? No way. Jesus was not ever devalued. The parents were not better than him. So, logically, submitting to another person does not in itself devalue anybody. In fact, in fact, participating in in relationships in which there is authority and in which there is submission is part of how God has designed the world to work. The entire world system that we live in is designed around relationships of authority and subjection. How do I know that from Scripture? Jesus is subject to God the Father. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to 28. Or we saw it in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. The church is subject to Jesus. Ephesians 1, 22. Ephesians 5, 24. Church members are called to be subject to church leaders. Hebrews 13, verse 17. All citizens are called to be subject to their government. Romans 13, verse 1 and 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Peter 2, 13. Young men are subject to their elders. 1 Peter 5, 5. Is that enough examples? So here's what we see. God has authority. We have seen Jesus, God incarnate, demonstrate subjection to others' authority and to the authority of the Heavenly Father. We see that God has designed the entire system of human relationships to contain both authority and subjection. So we have to conclude that, that such relationships do not devalue or demean God or his people. If Jesus was subject to authority, yet Jesus is God, if Jesus was not devalued, then Jesus proves that obedience or subjection is not devaluing. In fact, to be the one in authority, that displays the glory of God the Father. To be obedient to or subject to authority 
that depicts the glory of the sun. Which glory is better? Both glories are equal. Both are infinitely beautiful. Now I added one caveat to this. One little look out and beware. The phrase, when carried out in a God-honoring context, has to be involved in what we're talking about here. There are some authorities we cannot obey. God called us in Romans 13.1 to obey our government, right? But we can only obey the government insofar as the government does not command us to break the law of God. Right? When, when Nebuchadnezzar and his friends, or no, sorry, it was King Darius back then, when Darius and his friends told Daniel, you can't pray, what did Daniel do? He prayed anyway. Right? When, when, when Nebuchadnezzar said, bow down and worship this statue, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said no. Humans are fallible. We do not obey people absolutely the same way we obey God. We would never command, and, and, and what I'm about to mention here, these are the kind of arguments people try to throw up to make the whole premise, the whole point go away, and it's bad logic. We don't, we're not saying we would ever have commanded Christians to obey a Nazi government. We're not, we're not saying that we would command Christians to obey a government that's promoting like mandatory abortions like we saw in China. That's not what we're talking about. And authority can be abused. I'm not suggesting at all that you are to subject yourself to abuse in order to demonstrate godly character. I'm not saying that. But a command to break the law of God, a command to accept abuse, is not what's at the center of the point here. Let's not let the rare extreme case come in and blow up the actual principle. That's not good reasoning. Babies in bathwater and all the rest, right? We do not submit to perverse authority because that does not depict the character of God. But with it understood, with it understood that abusive and godless authority is not in question here, obedience to authority and subjection to authority is without a doubt a way to demonstrate the character and the glory of God. Thus, premise number two is true. Relationships of authority and subjection, when carried out in a God-honoring context, demonstrate God's character and glory and do not demean God or His children in any way. You with me so far? Still? <sighs> Again, I'll stop being too teachery here a little bit. But. Conclusion. Therefore, if you're feeling teachery, you can just write a little triangle with the dot, dot, dots for your therefore. Would that make you feel better? Therefore, we participate in relationships of authority and subjection in order to demonstrate God's glory. If the two premises are, are correct, this is a logical conclusion. Agree? If God made us to display His glory, 
And if rightly participating in relationships of authority and subjection displays God's glory, we should be willing to participate in relationships of authority and subjection. We should not pretend that having authority is bad. We should not pretend that it is wrong to be the one in charge. We should not pretend that it's wrong to be under the authority of another person. And this finally brings us to the text that we will skim today and Lord willing look at more tomorrow. And we will see in it three relationships of authority and subjection that most of us participate in. And then, like I said, Lord willing, we'll get deeper later. So the first point under the conclusion, the first point under, uh, under the conclusion is reflect the glory of God in marriage. Reflect the glory of God in marriage. Colossians 3:18 through 19 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So the first relationship that we see set up here is marriage. And yes, God says in here and other places that this is a loving relationship which includes authority and submission. It is one of subjection and authority, if you will. It is intended to demonstrate the glory of God. Husbands who love demonstrate the glory of the Father. When you lead in a godly way, you demonstrate the character of the Father. Wives who are subject to those husbands demonstrate the glory of the Son. Or, as Ephesians 5 puts it, husbands who love sacrificially as Christ loved the church, right? That's what they're supposed to do, is love sacrificially look like Jesus. And wives respond by demonstrating the church's relationship and devotion to Christ. So, Again, this is the command that a lot of people in our culture just cannot stomach. But remember, please, subjection does not imply inferiority. Subjection is not absolute. Subjection takes place in the context of a loving relationship. Subjection does not require yielding to abuse. Voluntary subjection to someone who is your equal in value, though, demonstrates the very glory and order that is present in the Holy Trinity. Next week, we'll try to move into this and ask what it looks like practically to live like this. But for now, here's what I call you to do. I call you to pray. Ask God how you who are married can best demonstrate the glory of God in your marriage. If you're a man, ask God, how do you lead lovingly as a servant, sacrificially? If you're a woman, ask God, how can I be subject to my husband in a way that is fitting in the Lord? And if the verse bothers you, talk to God about it for the week and ask him to change your heart to match his heart and his view. Seek to glorify God and display his attributes in your marriage. Point number two for next week will be reflect the glory of God as parents and children. Look at 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So here, one more relationship in which we see 
authority and subjection to authority. And without going deep into it this morning, here's what I want to ask parents and children to do. Pray. Ask God to help you to demonstrate His glory. So if you're a child here this morning, ask God to help you to obey in a way that will demonstrate the glory of God. How can I obey my parents in a way that will show off the glory of God and make me look like Jesus obeying his parents? If you are a parent, ask God to help you to love and lead the way that he loves and leads you. Third point for next week. Reflect the glory of God in your occupation. Colossians 3, 22-4, says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not as for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now again, I'm going to save the details of this for next week. But here's something I want you to understand. Paul is not here, God is not here, affirming what most of us think of when we think of the word slave. He's not affirming the Americanized institution of slavery. By the way, a logical fallacy, a logical error, a big one, is to use a word in one way and present an argument, and then to use that same word in a different way to argue against the same argument. It is fallacious reasoning for me to use one word that means one thing in one part of my rationale and one in another. And that's going to be true when people argue. Have you ever heard somebody try to argue against Christianity because of the issue of slavery? Well, the problem is what we mean by slavery and what the Romans meant by slavery was different and what the Jews meant by slavery was different than both. We cannot make that argument. It doesn't work. The system of slavery in the Roman Empire was not the same as what we had when Americans were kidnapping purchasing and selling people based on their race in the 16th and 17th century. Neither was slavery of that time the same as the horrific thing that is human trafficking in our country and around the world today. Those slaveries are never affirmed by God. Never. The best way for us to apply this section, if you really want to get the closest parallel from that day to our day, is to apply it to your job to your occupation. Your job is more similar to Roman slavery than American slavery was. So, pray. Ask God to help you to demonstrate Christ-like obedience to authority at work. And bosses, if you get to boss folks around, ask God to help you display godly leadership. Ask God to help you look like God the Father as you lead at work. So in closing, I want to recall our focus here because this is, this is heavy, teachy, logic-y stuff. But remember what Colossians 3 started for us? 
It was a section in which God told us, in the light of the gospel, live differently. At the beginning of the section of commands, Paul called us to center our attention in one direction. He called us to set our minds on Christ. And if you don't set your mind and your thoughts and the, 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 the desires of your heart firmly with Christ at the center, you will fail in the areas that he commands us. If you're not focused on Jesus and his glory, you will not be able to exercise authority in a Christian way. And if you're not centered on Jesus Christ and his glory, you will not be able to submit to authority as Jesus did. If you don't center your all on Christ, you will not be able to recognize that being under another person's authority does not devalue you. So hear again the call of God and make this your desire as you dwell on the concepts of relationships. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. So as we close, let's remind you of this. If you want peace, if you want joy, if you want hope, if you want favor from God, if you want to get these things in relationships right, you first have to be in a relationship with God. If you want to be forgiven of your sin, if you want to have heaven when you die, you have to submit to God. He is a kind master. He is a loving master. He sacrificed much to be able to forgive us. So let's let go of our lives and let go of our perceived rights and let's turn everything over to him and put our trust in Jesus. And if you trust Jesus, he will forgive you and he will save you and he will grant you perfect happiness forever in heaven when this life is at an end. And if you are saved, if you are here and you're a believer, then submit to Christ because he knows what's best. He always does what's best. Let him take hold of your life and turn it into a picture of the glory of God. Let's bow together in prayer.